I think most of you probably know um, at this point about uh, what's going on with Bruce Swiegel. Um, this morning he had a procedure, I believe it was last night or Friday night, to try to reopen his uh, left lung. They'd already done that once this week. Um, and uh, it worked initially and then his lung collapsed again. And at this point they're not gonna do any more uh, procedures on Bruce. Um, so Kathy texted this morning and said they're gonna, uh, she's gonna be talking to hospice care uh, tomorrow morning. Um, so, you know, obviously that's a big deal and uh, I think not terribly unexpected. Um, you know, Bruce has had significant health issues for a while, but um, doesn't make it any easier. And uh, so just be in prayer for Bruce and Kathy um, over the next few days and uh, that Lord will give Kathy strength and Bruce as well. Um, she said he, he seems to be at peace with it this morning, seems to be in a good mood actually. And so uh, you can just pray for both of them and let's do that now. Uh, before we get to our, our text of scripture this morning, all right? Father, we uh, just want to lift up Bruce and Kathy uh, to you this morning. Um, pray for uh, Bruce. I pray that you would uh, just give him rest and trust in you and in your care for him, um, uh, even in these, over these next few days. I pray for Kathy as well. I pray you give her strength, um, help her to be focused on you. Uh, I pray that our church body would be able to come around them and encourage them. I uh, encourage Kathy in particular, and uh, Lord, we just pray that um, you'd be honored through this situation and uh, that, uh, that you would give uh, Kathy much strength and grace uh, over the next few days, Lord. Uh, we thank you for your care and your love for us. Uh, thank you for your, your kindness and your sovereignty, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title, I think you can see it on the screen there. Um, is of the sermon today is devotion and duplicity. Two words, and I want you to think about that first word, devotion, this morning. Uh, that's really the word we're going to be focused on. And I'm not using that word uh, to talk about your morning time with the Lord, your devotions um, that you do. I'm not using it that way. Uh, I looked up the definition of the word, and here are a couple of, uh, of definitions that are given that will give some clarity to this word this morning. Let me read you a couple of these. First of all, devotion is profound dedication or consecration. I thought that was a really helpful definition, profound dedication. And then the second definition was devotion is earnest attachment to a cause or person. Profound dedication, earnest attachment. I think one of the clearest examples of devotion to the cause of the gospel that we've probably seen over the last hundred years or so uh, is the American missionary Jim Elliott. Some of you will be familiar with Jim. If you're not, Jim was a student in the 19, uh, late 1940s, early 1950s at Wheaton College and he was profoundly dedicated to taking the gospel to people who had never heard the gospel before. He was consecrated to that cause, and ultimately that led Jim to the country of Ecuador. And he went there with four other men and uh, their wives, and they moved to Ecuador, and they moved there and targeted a group of people, a tribe who lived in a remote jungle called the Aka Indians. They lived in complete isolation from the modern world and lived in the jungle, and they were violent toward outsiders, didn't want their culture and their way of life to be influenced or changed. 
And so uh, they responded uh, violently to people who would try to come in and, and make contact with them. In fact, the name Aka uh, in the, the language there means savage. Um, so they were, they were called what they were, what they acted like. And so the men put together this strategy of trying to make contact with these Indians over a number of years uh, while living in Ecuador, and they would uh, fly a small plane over the jungle and would drop gifts out to the people. They would attach gifts to a rope and uh, drop them in into the, the village or near the village or whatever. They would shout greetings out to the people from the airplane. And so there was maybe a little bit of familiarity there. And finally, they picked a day where they were going to land on a strip of land right by the river near the jungle, the edge of the jungle, January 3rd, 1956. And so they landed their plane there, and they made contact with uh, three Aka Indians. I believe it was two men and a woman came out to them. They actually talked with them a little bit. Uh, they took one of the men up in an airplane ride uh, for a few minutes and uh, went back down, and the, the, the Aka Indians went back to their village, and uh, it seems like things were going initially well, and the, the American missionaries were supposed to make contact by radio at 4.30 that afternoon, and they never made contact. And... Uh, apparently, a group of 10 Aka hunters had come out and had attacked the missionaries and killed all of them on the spot. Uh, Jim Elliott was 28 years old when he died. Now, can you imagine if that event would have taken place today, how it would have been covered in the news or on social media? What a waste. What a waste of life for those men. How extreme. What an example of colonialism. These guys clearly had a Messiah complex. Why were they doing this? That's outrageous to live your life that way. To the modern, typical American worldview, it, it is insane for a group of well-educated, well-to-do Americans to risk their lives to go to the extreme remote jungles of Ecuador and take a message that is 2,000 year, years old to this group of people to try to convert them to your worldview. It is insane. It is a waste of life to the modern, typical American worldview. But the devotion that Jim Elliott and these other men were driven by said that this sacrifice was actually worth it. The, the worldview, the way they saw the world based on the Bible, said that this type of action actually made a whole lot of sense. And because of the worth and the value of Jesus Christ and of the gospel, that giving up your life in this way and having this level of devotion was actually worth it and was a, a good use of your life. Many of you will know the words that Jim wrote in his journal. Uh, very common. Here's a picture of Jim. Here's what he wrote. I'm sure you've heard this before. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it's that understanding of life that the gospel of Jesus Christ demands of us to give up what we can't actually keep. You can't keep your life forever. But to give that up to gain what you can never, ever lose, that is a good transaction. And that's a worthwhile cause to be devoted to. And so... 
The gospel of Jesus Christ says that you and I can't remain half-hearted, casual followers of, followers of Jesus. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't match up to the glory and the worth of Jesus and of the gospel. So this morning, we're going to begin the very last section in the gospel of Mark, and you can turn there, Mark 14. And here we find Jesus making the ultimate sacrifice for us. This is the root of our sacrifice. This is the ultimate sacrifice that he makes for us in these chapters. And his sacrifice for us calls us to be singularly devoted to him out of response to that sacrifice. And this section called the suffering servant, that's what we're going to call this whole next section, chapters 14 through the beginning of chapter 16. This section begins with a story that I think sets the tone for what our devotion to Jesus looks like. And it calls us to a life of not half-hearted pursuit of Christ, but a fully devoted pursuit of him because of what he has done for us and because of who he is. So Mark 14, verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Now keep in mind, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Mark, but since chapter 11, everything in this Gospel has been during the final week of Jesus' life. So it's been only a few days that have taken place from Mark 11 all the way up to where we are now, chapter 14. And what has happened over these few days is Jesus entered Jerusalem to great applause and acclaim from the people at the triumphal entry. He entered into the temple, debated with the religious leaders in the temple, in the courtyard there. In chapter 13, he predicted the coming destruction of Jerusalem, of the temple, the temple leadership, and he talked about the end of the age when he would return again. Now we get to chapter 14 and verse 1, and we're getting ever closer to the time of his death. Look at chapter 14, verse 1, the beginning. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened bread. So, of course, the, past, the Passover began on Friday evening. Remember, the Jewish calendar started at sundown, and so the Passover began Friday evening at sundown, and so the events we're going to look at this morning were on Wednesday evening. And here we encounter the religious leaders of Israel. They're led by the chief priests, but over and over again through these chapters, we've seen different sections of religious leaders, all of them opposed to Jesus, and they are not happy with him. <laughs> it was now two days, verse 1, before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him. They're not happy with him at all. They're going to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And it makes sense. I mean, all throughout his ministry, they've been opposed to him. They've been concerned about him. But now he shows up to Jerusalem and the people rejoice over his entry. And it seems very clearly that he is presenting himself as a kingly figure when he comes into the city. Then he goes into the temple. He drives out the merchants and those who are doing business, he attacks the flow of commerce in the temple courtyard, causes a huge disruption there, and claims the authority to do that. Then when the religious leaders come to him the next day in the temple and they ask him about it, over and over again, he humiliates them in front of the crowds and shows that they don't actually understand their Bible and they don't really know what they're doing. He says things like this to the religious leaders. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
I guess he was offensive to them, right? I mean, these are the guys who claim to know the Bible best and the power of God the best in Israel, and he's telling them, you don't even understand the most basic realities of Scripture, and you certainly don't understand the power of God. So they are looking for a way to destroy him. They want him out of the picture. But they know they can't just arrest him in the open. They can't just grab him as he's entering Jerusalem on Thursday morning. Look what it says in verse 2. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They're trying to catch him, it says, by stealth, with guile, with deceit. They want to trick him into falling into their hands. And they know they have to do it that way because the people will cause a riot if they go out and and capture Jesus in the temple courtyard where he's been the last few days. Why was this? Why would the people cause a riot? Well, during the week of Passover, the population of Jerusalem swelled to about four times at least its normal size. So there's all sorts of people who are coming into the city. I mean, can you imagine if the city of Detroit swelled by four times the population? There are people everywhere around Jerusalem. And you have to remember why they've come to Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which was the most important Jewish festival. And what was the Passover celebrating? It was celebrating God's deliverance of his people from a foreign power. At this time, the Jewish people are under the thumb of the nation or the empire of Rome. And so all these people are coming together to think about the time that God delivered them from a foreign power in Egypt They're thinking about that, and so during this time, when they're under the thumb of Rome, it makes sense that there would be a high level of likelihood that anything could incite a riot and a nationalistic fervor that would spill over into violence against Rome. And the religious leaders did not want to cause that, and they knew that capturing Jesus in public out in the open would cause that. So they're concerned about it. Now, when you get here to these first couple of verses in chapter 14, if you remember back to chapter 8, we've been expecting that Jesus would die at the hands of the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, all of the religious leaders. They, Jesus predicted this. And now you see that plot going forward. And Mark is returning to that plot and showing us, yes, this is ultimately how Jesus is going to die. But in verses 1 and 2, you don't find out exactly what's going to happen. You don't find out how they're going to take him by stealth. But I want you to look down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. This gives us more information. How is this going to take place that they're going to catch Jesus by stealth? Well, one of his closest associates actually initiates with the chief priests. It wasn't just that they offered him money. He went to them to betray Jesus. He initiates. And how do they respond? Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad. Man, they were were pumped. They were happy about this. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so now you sort of read the rest of this with this 
cloud hanging over the story that Judas is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And most likely what that means is that he will give up Jesus's position at night and tell the chief priest, this is where he's moving tonight. This is where he's going to go so that you can capture him at night. That way the crowds are not around him. That way it's quiet and that way it won't cause a scene. And so now the stage is set for Jesus to be betrayed by one of his closest allies. Now, obviously, you'll notice there that I skipped a bunch of verses. Chapter 14, we read verses 1 and 2, and we read verses 10 and 11, and we skipped verses 3 to 9. Now, why was that? Well, this is a classic technique that Mark uses, and I know you've seen this before if you've walked with us through the Gospel of Mark, but it's called a sandwich technique. I didn't come up with the name, but that's what it's called. Basically, Mark inserts one story into the middle of two halves of another story. And so if you were to just cut verses 3 to 9 out, then it would read like one story, verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. But Mark has intentionally put those two pieces, those halves of the story, on the edges and has inserted the other story into the middle of it. Now, why has he done that? Because he wants you to understand that you have to read both of these together to get the picture and to get the whole point of what he's saying. It's not enough to just cut them apart. You have the bread and the meat in the middle. And you have to read all of these together to understand his point. And when he does this, he really wants you to focus on the centerpiece of the, of the story, the one that's in the middle. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And what he wants you to see here is in verses 3 to 9, there is this story of incredible sacrifice and devotion to Jesus. And Mark wants you to read this story of devotion, extravagant devotion to Christ, in contrast to the betrayal and duplicity of Judas and the chief priests. And it highlights the devotion of the woman that we're going to read about in verses 3 through 9 to see this devotion in contrast to the duplicity and betrayal of Judas and the religious leaders. This woman was willing to give up her most valuable possession for Jesus because she knew how worthy he was. Judas was willing to betray the Lord and accept just a small amount of money to do it. Two ends of the spectrum, two responses to Christ. But in the middle here where we're going to focus, we find someone who is so overwhelmed by love for Jesus that she gives up what is nearly priceless to her just to show how worthy he is. And so I think as we're entering into these, the final few days and the last few passages dealing with the life of Christ, and we're going to see Christ's sacrifice for us, I think Mark begins this section by emphasizing the devotion that we have in response to that sacrifice. And he wants you and I to consider our response to Jesus and the devotion that we have to him. So this morning in verses 3 to 9 in particular, we're going to see five sketches of extravagant devotion that bring purpose to our passion. Five sketches of extravagant devotion. This is what it looks like when you're devoted to Jesus. The first one of these is that it will be lavish 
And this is in verse 3. First part of verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, I told you that the city of Jerusalem was filled with people, and it was, there were so many people around Jerusalem during the Passover that some people had to stay outside the city. Some people would sleep on the hillsides around the city, but Jesus and his disciples stay in the little town of Bethany a couple miles, actually two miles from Jerusalem, and then they would walk in each morning. While they are there staying in Bethany, there's a dinner hosted for them at this house of Simon the leper. Now, he probably wasn't a leper hosting a dinner. He probably had leprosy before and had been healed of it, maybe even by Jesus. If we want to use our sanctified imaginations a little bit there, that's what I'd like to think. But he's hosting a gathering for Jesus. And while they're eating, something happens that defies social conventions. This is unusual. While he was at Bethany, verse 3, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. So they're sitting at this dinner, reclining around the table as they did, not sitting at chairs, and a woman enters the room. We don't have her identity here, but she goes over to Jesus and just her entering the room would have probably stopped conversation. She goes over to Jesus, and she doesn't just pop open the flask that she has and take the top off of it. Sometimes, I'm sure you've heard in this story, that the only way to get the, the oil out was to break it. Well, then how did they get it in? It, that's not reality when it comes to this, right? So it's, the point is, instead of just taking the top off of it, she dramatically breaks it, which I think shows us just the lavishness of what she was doing. She was not intending to pour out part of this oil on him. She was, from the get-go, going to pour the entire flask on him. She breaks it and pours the whole thing over his head. Now, this wasn't just your average oil or perfume. Mark goes to great lengths here to try to show you how expensive and how valuable this is. It's of ointment of pure nard. Now, that doesn't mean anything to me. I'm not an essential oils kind of guy. But nard was incredibly valuable, shockingly valuable. You could only get nard from India, Nepal, China, around the Himalayan mountains, a particular plant that grew there. And so to get that plant and the oil that would come from it to Israel, obviously during that day, would have taken quite a bit of effort. And this wasn't just, this was pure nard. It wasn't mixed with anything. It wasn't diluted at all. This was the real deal, as genuine as it comes. He even says here, it is very costly. Rather than opening it, she breaks it and pours the entire thing over his head. Now, why does she do this? Well, in the Old Testament, anointing someone with perfume or with oil was a sign of friendship and fellowship. I don't think she's anointing him as the Messiah here. I think she's just saying, I love him. He's a valuable person. He is a friend to me. She was trying to signify and show those things. But pouring out the entire bottle on his head was going well beyond just your standard sign of friendship and courtesy here. She wants everyone to know how valuable and how important Jesus is. 
If you were to look down in verse 5, you would see the response of the religious leaders, just one, or not of the religious leaders, of the disciples. You'd see the response of how expensive this is. This could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. A year's worth of wages is what they're talking about. Now, I don't know how to exactly to translate this into modern vernacular, but let me take a shot at it here. The median income for a household in Woodhaven, Michigan is $58,500 a year. So imagine that you have a bottle of an essential oil that you can sell for $58,000 on eBay. What person is worth pouring that on their head just to show how valuable they are? This is over the top, right? This is an effusive display of devotion to Jesus. And Mark includes this here because I think he's saying this is the attitude of extravagant devotion that followers of Jesus have to him. This is how valuable he is. Now, even as you're sitting there, you're probably thinking, man, that's, that's crazy. That is uncomfortably crazy. It's kind of weird, really. It's, it's a little over the top. I mean, to be that committed to something, ah, it's just kind of uncomfortable. Like, Imagine how everyone in the room was feeling, and you'll see how they were feeling in a second here. But when someone's that committed to something and that passionate about something, sometimes we get a little weirded out by it, right? It's a little odd to be that over the top. We prefer a little bit more carefulness or even-handedness in our devotion to Jesus. I was looking this week at the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And if you've never read the Screwtape Letters, let me just encourage you to get it and read it. It's an excellent, excellent book. But if you're not familiar, the Screwtape Letters is, C.S. Lewis wrote this book, and it's a series of letters from, from one demon to another demon. It's from a, a teacher, an instructor demon to an apprentice. And the apprentice demon is trying to learn how to tempt his subject, his human being. And so all of these letters are the instructor teaching him and trying to help him in his endeavor to tempt this person and to bring this person to our father below. That's what he keeps saying. So the instructor demon writes to this lesser demon, the apprentice, concerning passion, devotion, and moderation. And I want you to hear this. Here's what he says. In a week or two, you will be making him doubt whether the first days of his Christianity were not perhaps a little excessive. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. If Jesus is who he says he is, and if he died for our sins, then moderation in our pursuit of him and love for him is the wrong answer. It's the wrong response. And I think that's what this woman demonstrates here. Is it over the top? Yes. 
Is it appropriate? Yes, it's right. But when you are like this, people will not like it and they'll be weirded out by it. And that's our second, there's that quote there, sketch. It will be lavish and it will be scorned in verses four and five. Notice the reaction here in verse four. There were some who said to themselves indignantly in their minds, they're thinking about this. They're watching this unfold and they're thinking they don't, it's not just that they don't like her actions, they think they're wrong. Being indignant towards something thinks you think it is morally wrong. This is just not right what she's doing. It's not just that I'm uncomfortable with it. They said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Why was it wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. With that price for this oil, they see her actions as a complete waste, just throwing it away. And so then at the end of verse five, they, sent, they scold her and they scolded her out loud now. They've moved from in their thoughts to out loud. They're scolding her. They're censuring her for, for what she's done. Now, it's interesting here because by telling her that she had wasted this resource, they're saying that Jesus is not worth it, that he's not worth pouring this oil on and being this devoted to, and he's not actually valuable enough for you to do something like this. So I think genuine and earnest attachment to the person of Christ will be seen as odd by the world around us. Cannot be cool and be this devoted to Jesus. Be considered misguided, inappropriate to use your life and your resources in this way. But Jesus isn't just calling for passion. That's what I want you to hear. He's not just calling for passion. He's not just calling for devotion to anything. The devotion and the passion has to be focused and fixed on one thing. That's our third sketch. We'll be scorned for this sort of devotion, but this sort of devotion will be Christ-centered. These men here were passionate, apparently, about the poor. But you can be passionate about the poor and completely miss being devoted to the most important person. And that's why we learn from verses 6 and 7 that our devotion must be Christ-centered. And that's what separates this woman's devotion from others. So she's being scolded. What an awkward situation. She's being reprimanded by this room full of people who've been eating with Jesus. And Jesus steps up and defends her, verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Stop giving her a hard time is what Jesus said. He defends her actions. And look what he says here. She has done a beautiful thing to me. You could translate this a good work. She has done a good work to me. Jesus understands the focus of her action was on him. It was about being kind to him and showing his worth and his value. The disciples who are scolding her are failing to value Jesus as she is. They're failing to see that he actually is worthy of this sort of extravagant devotion. On a side note here, what 
merely human person could say something like this, that he actually is worthy of this sort of devotion. And even what he says in verse 7, only the divine Son of God could say something like he says in verses 6 and 7. These guys are worried about the poor. Verse 7, for you, Jesus answers that, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, the disciples and whoever else are there are worried about the poor here. Maybe it's pure motives, maybe it's not. Jesus answers that here. And I've heard this response of Jesus used to say we shouldn't be concerned to serve the poor. That Jesus is actually saying, eh, it's not that big of a deal if you are concerned and if you, you worry about the poor. And that's really not the intention of what he's saying at all here. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 15. And in Deuteronomy 15, he actually uses this, you will always have the poor with you, to say, therefore, you should be concerned about the poor. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Right? So if you've ever heard somebody say, ah, the poor you'll always have with you. Why do we worry about them? Well, Jesus actually understands Because you'll always have the poor with you, we should be concerned with those who have less resources or who are marginalized. We ought to help serve them. But keep in mind what Jesus, the point he is making here is not don't serve the poor, but there are good things to do and then there are the best things to do. Look at verse 7. But you will not always have me. Keep in mind the time frame of, where he's, of when he's saying this. This is two days before his death. The hours of his life on earth are limited, and this woman, I think, understands that here. In two days, he will die, he will rise from the dead, he will ascend to the Father, and if she wants to show extravagant devotion to him, that is completely appropriate and a completely right for her to do that. And I think what Jesus is saying with the poor here is, don't let the good become the enemy of the best. Let your devotion be fixed where it needs to be on Christ. And I think the the people who are scolding her here had not yet learned the value, the worth of their Savior. Now, I think they would in time, but not yet. They had not yet learned to fix their love and devotion on him alone and have him be the supreme value that they have. It is a good thing to love your spouse, to love your kids, to love your job, to love your favorite book. It's a good thing to enjoy and love, not that those are all on the same level, your favorite book and your spouse. But do not, the point is, do not give your highest and best devotion to anything other than Jesus Christ. And that's what this woman understood here. There's an old Puritan author, one of my favorite little books, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, and he said this, Love is the greatest and most excellent thing we are masters of, and therefore it is folly and baseness to bestow it unworthily. 
The love and affection that you give is the most valuable thing, the most valuable resource that you have. What you treasure reveals who you are. So give your love to Jesus and him alone and to give it to anything else, to allow anything else to capture your heart at the deepest level is to bestow your love unworthily. It's to undervalue and misuse your love. So extravagant devotion is fixed on Jesus as the highest and greatest good. But it doesn't always involve an extravagant gift like this. And I love this. The fourth sketch of extravagant devotion. It will give what it can. And this is so beautiful. Notice what Jesus says in the beginning of verse 8. She has done what she could. Now, there's a danger in what we've been saying so far this morning. And there's some of this mentality in the broader church today that, you know, we've, we've talked about Jim Elliott and how he, at, in his 20s, moved to Ecuador and sacrificed his life to try to reach a group of people with the gospel that had never heard it before. We talked about this woman who, I mean, what else could she have possibly had that would have been more valuable than this? And she goes and she pours it on Jesus's head to show her devotion to him. It was probably her most prized possession. Chances are it was a family heirloom. She uses it to show her devotion to him. Those are both, Jim Elliott and this woman, those are massive and expensive actions that they show. And when you hear that, it's easy to think, man, I can't do that. I'm just not in a position to do that. I don't have anything that valuable. I can't move to Ecuador and be a missionary. I can't do something radical like that. And so it must not be enough. I must not really be devoted to Christ. And that's where what Jesus says here is so valuable for us. She has done what she could. She had the opportunity to show her devotion with this little bottle of ointment. And that's what was available to her, and so that's what she gave. Jim Elliott had the opportunity to go to Ecuador and die as a martyr, and that's what he gave. That is not expected for each of us. So what can we do? We can do just what this woman did. Give what you can. So I think what this passage calls us to is ordinary extravagant devotion. Ordinary extravagant devotion. It's devotion that is given to Christ day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, in all the small things of life. You and I showcase the worth and value of Jesus Christ by loving him with all that we have every single day, every single week. We love him by serving people at our job. We love him by loving our spouse sacrificially. We shepherd our kids. We serve those who are less fortunate around us. We show up to church and we sing with all our heart. We help our neighbor. We share the gospel. We read our Bibles. We love Jesus with everything we have. We do what we can 
We give what is available to us. We give what we can where we are in the moment, and Jesus Christ will be honored and seen as valuable when we do that. Ordinary, extravagant devotion. Now, ordinary, extravagant devotion, giving what we can, is always a response. And that's our last sketch here. It flows from the gospel. Five sketches of extravagant devotion flows from the gospel. Now, this woman, we don't know a lot about her. We don't know what she knew about Jesus' coming death. We don't know if she'd heard him teach about it, explain to the disciples. We don't know. But Jesus knows, and he connects her actions directly to his death. Look at the rest of verse 8. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So Jesus is connecting her actions to his death. And then look at verse 9. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, what's interesting here is that her name is not mentioned in this story. So we don't know her name, but we do know what she did. And I don't think what Jesus is saying here in verse 9 is, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, we're going to talk about her as a reward for what she did. It's kind of a quid pro quo here. We're going to honor her because she honored me. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying in verse 9. So why would he say that this story will be told wherever the gospel is proclaimed? I think he says this because her actions are the supreme example of what happens to someone when they're changed by love for Jesus. They flow from an understanding of who he is and what he's done. And so to tell this story, when you tell the story of Christ's death and his sacrifice for us, is to say this is your response to that. This is what it looks like. And so we're going to proclaim this story all around the world so that everyone knows it's this sort of extravagant devotion that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. So when people all around the world hear this, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When they hear that, They will also hear this, Mark 8, verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? When they hear those two passages, then they'll hear this passage. And they'll know, what does it look like to give up my life for Jesus Christ? It looks like what this woman did. It looks like this sort of extravagant devotion that flows from the gospel. So what are you devoted to? What is your heart captured by? A devoted heart, like we've been talking about this morning, leads us to make sacrifices big and small for our Savior. 
Why? Why did Jim Elliott do that? That is crazy. Why did this woman give up a family heirloom that's so valuable just for this man? Well, obviously, he's more than a man. Both of them did it because their hearts understood how worthy he is of our love. And how even if it seems crazy and out of whack and excessive and over the top, it's actually not. It's completely appropriate and completely worth it. And it makes total sense when you understand the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this example that's given to us. And we're thankful that we have the opportunity to talk about this this morning, that you included this story in your word so that we could be challenged and we could grow by it. And Lord, I pray for each one of us here. I pray that you would work on our hearts, help us to understand what we are captured by, what our affections are driven by, even this morning. And I pray that you would help us to know both big and small things that that we can do out of a response to your love and your sacrifice for us, a response that shows your value and your worth, even if it seems crazy to other people, Lord, to the world around us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your death on the cross, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.